think we're recording. All right, so this morning we've been uh, doing our Christmas series the last four weeks, and now we are going to go back to Philippians for one day, and then next Sunday uh, we're going to do a special New Year's sermon, and, and it's a special Sunday anyway because we have a baptism, but we're going to focus on uh, our global call as a church to go and make disciples of all nations, starting in Granville, and in North Granville, and in Middle Granville, and in all, all the different parts of Granville, and going to Washington County, and then to the ends of the earth. And we're going to talk together about, next week, what our church is doing to advance the gospel around the world, okay? Because some of you might not know, what, what are we supporting? Uh, who are we supporting? And so we're going to share. I'll share a little video clip of some people that we support. And uh, we'll also talk about why. Why do we want to give to support the work of missions? And, uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, end the service with a focus on local outreach and um, our, our, our vision for Granville and what we want to be used by the Lord to do here. So that's next week. This week we're in Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. But I just want to remind you guys where we've been, all right? Philippians is a short letter, four chapters, that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he started in the Roman city of Philippi. Now, as he's writing this letter, Paul is writing from a jail. He's writing in prison. Somebody brought him pen and paper, and he's writing a letter to the church. And what he's writing about is at the heart of it is joy. He wants the Philippians to find joy in knowing Jesus and adopting the servant-like mindset of Jesus that gives to others, that serves others with their lives. And that's what he's writing about. Um, and, and so it really, in my opinion, should make us stop and think. There's this guy in jail writing a letter about joy, <laughs> finding joy in Jesus. Like, doesn't that give you pause? Like, somebody in prison who's writing about joy. Why is Paul writing about joy? Wouldn't he be upset that he's in jail? Wouldn't it rob him of joy? No. In fact, as you read the letter, you see Paul is rejoicing in jail. He is rejoicing, one of the things he's rejoicing about is because he's been able to tell his prison guards about Jesus. And everybody in Rome is starting to know about this Jesus because Paul's locked up there. All right? How do you get some of the biggest, toughest, baddest soldiers in the Roman Empire to hear about Jesus? You chain them up to an apostle, to Paul. They can't get away, right? It's like... Man, I wish I could just kill this guy. But if I do, I'm going to lose my job because I'm getting paid to guard him and protect him. So I can't shut him up. I can't beat him up. So I just listen to him. Talk about Jesus. And eventually, I start to wonder, like, hmm, tell me more about this Jesus guy. And then they start to tell each other, dude, have you ever been chained to that Paul guy? You don't guarding him? No. Tell me, tell me, who is this guy? Well, he thinks this Jewish guy Jewish guy, he thinks he died and rose again. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Well, get chained to him yourself, because that's what they used to do. They used to chain him up so that you couldn't get away. You were chained to your prisoner. All right? So, Paul's rejoicing. Everybody's knowing about Jesus. And he's writing to the Philippian church because he wants them to know this joy as well. He's got this unshakable joy that a prison cell and losing everything can't take away from him. Now, in chapter 3, Paul is telling the church why he keeps reminding them to rejoice. He, he keeps reminding them because he wants their joy in Jesus to be safe. And he wants it to be safe because apparently there were men who were going around teaching things that Paul knew would end up robbing the Philippians of joy in Jesus if they didn't stay watchful and alert. So, 
Paul's writing these commands. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice because he doesn't want them to lose their joy in the Lord by falling to these false teachers. So what I'm going to do next is I'm going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Brian will pick up in a couple weeks at verse, probably he'll do a running start and then hit verse 10, um, just to remind us where we've been, and he'll, he'll finish out this section. So verse 1 of Philippians 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Did you hear that there? I want to keep your joy safe. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Why? For we are the circumcision. We who serve God or worship God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. We brag about Jesus. You know how awesome Jesus is? And we don't put any confidence in the flesh. Verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. You want to play that game? All right. Here's my list, right? Paul says. Five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. He's like, you want to know how devoted I was to Judaism? I killed Christians. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, that comes from God on the basis of faith. So we're going to see three things in the verse, these verses this morning. Three main things. First, we're going to look at Paul's command to rejoice in verse 1. The second thing we're going to look at is the enemies of Christian joy. Who are these guys that are going to rob them of joy if they listen to them? And then third, we're going to look at the source of Christian joy in verses 7 to 9. So first, the command to rejoice do you see that there in verse 1 of chapter 3? If you're looking at your Bible, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord, writes Paul. Now, we've seen Paul talk about joy before now in this letter. In particular, back in verse 25 of chapter 1, you can peek there if you want. 1 verse 25, Paul says he wants to stay alive and not die in prison and he's like, man, if I died in prison, I'd go to be with Jesus, and that's going to be amazing. But I, at this point, I, I'd rather stay alive for your progress and your joy in the faith. I want to stay alive so I can write you letters about how to stay happy in Jesus. Okay? I want to stay alive because maybe I'll be able to go visit you again. I think I will, so that I can encourage you in your faith. So he wants to stay alive to, to help them find joy in Jesus. That's his main reason for wanting to live. That's why he's writing this chapter, to help them rejoice in the Lord. It's actually why he's writing the whole letter. He wants his friends and his fellow Christians in Philippi to find deeper and deeper joy in knowing Jesus. You could look at chapter 4, verse 4 for a second. There he says it again. Rejoice in the Lord sometimes? No. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. Those are just a couple places where joy pops up. We could go, I think there's maybe 18 times where he says the word joy. I mean, joy is all over this letter. It's a short letter. This Roman prisoner, Paul, was the happiest prisoner you've ever met. And he wants the Philippians to share in his joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want joy in my life. And I, I always have. Can you, can you relate to that? Do you want to be happy? 
Yeah, Mar- somebody that just I just want to be sad all the time. Maybe because being sad feels good in a twisted kind of way. But really, we want to feel good. So we, we want joy. And the reality is, all humans, we're, we're driven by two core motivations in our lives. That you name every other motivation in somebody's life, it can be boiled down to one of these two motivations. We try to avoid pain. And we try to pursue pleasure. Okay? These core motivations. You look at everything that you do in a, in a given day. It can be boiled down to avoiding pain, relational pain, emotional pain, mental pain, social pain. You, you name it. Physical pain. And pursuing happiness. All right? In fact, God hardwired us this way. Even on a biological level, think about what happens when you touch something hot. Really hot. What do you do? You avoid the pain so that you can have the pleasure of not feeling that pain. Right? You don't want that. Uh, what do you do when you taste something sweet, like a Hershey's peanut butter cup? I want another one. Five. Okay, we want more, right? God created the pleasure center and the pain centers of our brain. And in the Bible, God is constantly calling you and I towards pleasure and away from pain. How does he do, do that? God warns against the pain of disobedience. Disobedience hurts us. We were talking about um, parenting, with uh, Richard and Kim a little bit last night. We are talking about why do we discipline, right? Because in, we're, we're inflicting a little measured pain into our kid's life so that they know disobedience hurts. Disobedience to the Lord hurts eternally. And that's why we want, God warns us because he wants us to find pleasure in knowing him, loving him, following him, living the way that he has designed us to live. So in the Bible, God is after your joy. Now, we've got to be very careful here. Because everybody you meet that believes in God thinks God wants them to be happy. For the most part. Right? You meet somebody, if there's a God, he wants me to be happy. Oh, God's okay with what I'm doing. He wants me to be happy. After all, we've got to be really careful. God wants me to be happy is not a controversial statement. Most people would say, yeah, I I agree with that. But how God intends for you to be happy, that gets a little trickier. Some people teach that if you obey God and you keep all his rules, then God's going to give you all the earthly things that you need to be as happy as you possibly could be. You'll be rich if you obey God. You'll be maybe famous. You'll have a nice house. You'll have a nice family. And all your kids are going to be nice. And all your friends are going to be nice. And everything's just going to be nice. And if you don't love God, God enough, then things are going to be bad. But if you love God more and you obey God more, you're just going to have a nice life and you're going to die nice in a nice way in your sleep. Right? And you're just going to have your best life now headed to your best life then. All right? That's the title of a really popular book, Your Best Life Now. All right? So listen. All right? That's wrong. There's a name for that. It's called the prosperity gospel. That the good news of the Bible is that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, yes, he does want you to be wise. But think about Jesus. Has anybody ever obeyed God more than Jesus? No. And did Jesus have a house? No. Did Jesus have a nice Lamborghini car? No. He didn't even have a donkey. He borrowed one. The master has need of it. All right? Jesus had a cross. But did Jesus have joy? You better believe it. 
Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross because he knew it was on the other side. Salvation for untold millions. Obeying his father. Jesus had joy. His relationship with his father, knowing his father, was the greatest joy in Jesus' life. See, if you simply think, God doesn't want me to experience pain, then if you start to follow him and something hurts you, like you have a low day or you have pain in your life, you might start to think, well, maybe God doesn't really love me after all. After all I've done for you, God, this is what you give me? Maybe he's not even real. The Bible talks differently about true happiness and true joy. The Bible says God actually uses trials and pain and suffering and hard things in our lives to push us towards him. He takes away things on earth that we might cling more tightly to Jesus and to the love that can never be taken away. Knowing him. We see that in Philippians 1 verse 29. Philippians 1 29, Paul says that it was granted to the Philippian church to suffer for Jesus' sake. Why? Because God knows that suffering draws them closer to Jesus. So when we say, God, when I say as your pastor, God wants you to be happy. He wants your joy. Some people say, well, there's a difference between joy and happiness. You might have heard that. No, it's, it's the same concept in the Bible. Delight, joy, happiness, pleasure, they're all lumped together. But God is after not the momentary buzz that you might have when you get a gift. No, he does give good gifts to us. But all the gifts that he, he gives us... Um, they are intended by God to give us tastes of how good he is. If this beautiful sunset brings me a little bit of joy when I see it, how much greater the God who created it with a word. If this relationship with my wife gives me joy in this moment, how much greater would my relationship with the one who created her be? give me. If this sugar, this little gift of sweetness gives me pleasure right now, how much greater the pleasure of knowing God and in tasting the new creation that he has in store. Okay, So the pleasures of earth summon us. They point us like signposts. There's something bigger. There's something more out there. It's God. That's why they can never ultimately satisfy. And when God introduces, not gifts, but pain into our lives, it's actually intended by him to make us loosen our grip on the things of earth. Things that couldn't satisfy our souls anyway. And to tighten our heart's grip on the Lord. So that's how God uses both pleasure and pain to drive us to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If Paul said to the church, rejoice in your family. What if somebody in the church didn't have a family? What if their family was a mess and not bringing them joy? That's not a stable place to rejoice. That could go up and down. How you feel about your family could go up and down on any given day. If Paul said rejoice in your money, how does that work when my money's not there? If Paul said rejoice in in your nice car, what happens when the car breaks? <laughs> right? Rejoice in how strong you are. You see guys taking selfies and they got muscles in places I didn't even know existed, right? I'm like, man, oh, for a body like that, guess what? They're all going to die like everybody else. All right? We're all going to be weak someday unless Jesus returns. Don't rejoice in that. It's temporary. Yeah, you can be thankful that you're strong. But remember, it's a gift, and it can be taken away in a moment when the doctor says the words, you have cancer. Okay? And I've seen young men get cancer. 
What a humbling experience. And in that moment, that's when the words of Paul become sweet. Rejoice in the Lord. Because he doesn't go away. And he never fails. And as our flesh grows weaker and weaker, whenever that happens for you, it will happen. Your Lord will taste sweeter and sweeter provided you have a relationship with him. Okay? So, rejoice in the Lord, but in the Christian life, there are many things after your joy, things that want to steal your joy in the Lord. Sin is one of those things. But Paul's not talking about sin here. One of my favorite little booklets about sin is called Seven Killjoys. Sin kills joy. Envy kills joy. Pride kills joy. Lust kills joy. Anger kills joy. They kill joy in the Lord. All of them. But Paul's not talking about sin here. He's got, there's plenty else. He's, you know, he, he goes after that in other places. However, what he does here is talk about false teaching. False teaching kills joy as well. Joy in the Lord. You want to see some of the saddest people it's people that have bought hook, line, and sinker into what I talked about earlier, the prosperity gospel. And they believe God wants them healthy, wealthy. They believe God wants all these earthly blessings for them if only they have enough faith. And this false teaching, guess when it robs them of their joy? When they lose everything. When this radio preacher says, give all your possessions, give, give me a faith gift of $50,000 or whatever it is, these radio guys, somehow people still send the money and they're buying the jets, but the people that are sending the money, they stay poor and they become disillusioned with the God of the Bible and they become miserable. God failed me. He didn't heal my mom and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and she died. God failed me. He didn't give me what I wanted. It doesn't work that way. He's after your joy in Him. And He gives you whatever will drive you towards Him. If it's a gift, it's that you may rejoice and give thanks to Him. If it's a trial, it's that you let go and say, God, you're enough. You're enough. False teaching is deadly. But the prosperity gospel wasn't what was being taught here in Philippi. Let's look at the enemies of Christian joy in verses 2 to 6. This is the second point. The enemies of Christian joy. Paul says, verse 2, Look out or watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Yikes, I think when I read that. I'm like, that sounds like some pretty savage people. Dogs, flesh hackers, evildoers. Who are they? Simply put, they're Jewish men who are going around to the different churches that Paul has started among Gentile believers. And they're starting to teach these non-Jewish Christians that if they really want to experience the blessed life from God, if they really want to be righteous in God's sight, then they need to receive the ancient sign of being in covenant relationship with God. And that ancient sign was circumcision. They needed to get circumcised. That was the sign that God had given to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, many, many years before. It was to mark all his offspring as belonging to God. And any children born... From folks that were circumcised, it was just symbolizing they were those who had, were part of the circumcised nation, separate from God. Now, these dogs, these Jewish teachers, they were saying that knowing and trusting Jesus wasn't enough. For Gentile Christians to be righteous in God's sight. They believe that the Gentile Christians still had to become Jewish if they wanted God to love them. 
They had to receive this sign of circumcision in their flesh as a mark that they belonged to God's family. It's quite likely that they were also saying that these Gentile Christians had to do all sorts of other things that the Jews had to do under the law of Moses. Like, don't eat pork, the food laws. Um, Other things like keep the Sabbath. We're not really sure. Paul doesn't go into detail. But what we do know is that they were traveling around to these churches with a whole list of Jewish laws and customs that they wanted people in Paul's Gentile churches to start to keep. What are you going to do about it, Paul? You're in jail. <laughs> Here we come. And Paul knows they're headed to Philippi. And he says, listen, the dogs are coming. Who let the dogs out? We don't know. But they're coming for you. Look out. Because they're after your joy. These guys took great pride in these external markers of the flesh that showed they were Jewish. But the whole story of the Bible, the Old Testament, it actually shows us that even though somebody was circumcised, they received the sign of the covenant that they were part of God's family, they still could have a heart that was as far away from God as you could imagine. A little operation with a knife at eight days old didn't change the heart of a Jewish person. It was never intended to. It was only a mark that you were a part of the people of God, that God was going to use to bring us the Messiah, Jesus, who would then do an operation to everyone who trusted him. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. This heart surgery was what the surgery with the knife pointed towards. But the knife could never cut off sin. Just cut off a little piece of flesh that symbolized we have a problem. We got to get this flesh, the sin, out of our hearts. Okay? And only God's Spirit can do it. And Paul is saying in the next verse we're going to look at that the Philippians have had this heart surgery. Okay? And it didn't happen with a knife. Look at verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision. He's talking to Gentiles mostly, remember. These are people that. They might not even ever heard of circumcision before, okay? They were born pagan parents. They, they weren't part of the Jewish nation. And he says, we are the circumcision. We who serve and worship God by his spirit, who boast or we brag about Jesus, and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. So listen, Paul says, don't obey those Guys who show up and they just want you to get a little operation with a knife. It's okay. You'll hurt for a little while, but God's going to love you more. No. Listen. Don't obey those, Paul says. Jesus has already done the circumcision process in your heart by his spirit. Why do you want that? This is far better. Paul doesn't really care whether somebody is circumcised or not. It's not if they want to do it for cleanliness reasons or um, because they're, they're proud of the fact or you know proud in a good way, like I'm Jewish and this is part of who I am. And yes, I love Jesus, but you know this is what we do. Like Paul, Paul doesn't mind if folks got circumcised. It's not a big deal. But it becomes a big deal when these, Gentile, when these Jewish teachers coming from Jerusalem show up and say to these Gentile believers, yeah, Jesus is great, but you need more. You've got to actually become Jewish. You've got to circumcise your children. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the food laws. You have to observe the Sabbath. No, this is a deadly heresy. And Paul actually combats it in a lot of his letters. The letter to the Galatians. In Philippians, Paul's saying the dogs are coming, look out. In Galatians, he's like, they're everywhere. <laughs> and they've already done a lot of havoc. And, and, and he's, that's a huge letter where he addresses it. 
So read Galatians if you want. But Paul says, you don't need that. The power of the Holy Spirit has changed your hearts. So boast in Jesus. Now, look at what Paul goes on to say in verses 4 to 6. There Paul says, he's actually been down that road of putting confidence in the flesh himself. Paul knows from first-hand experience that it doesn't lead to rejoicing in the Lord. It leads to rejoicing in the flesh and in our performance, our, our works. And that's not a secure place to hang your joy. Our flesh will fail us. We'll unpack why in a minute, but for, for now, let me read verses 4 to 6. Paul explains his own past life of putting confidence in the flesh. He says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. You catch that? He, he's, he's going, listen, these guys are coming to you bragging about their little circumcision operation and how good they are at keeping the rules. He's like, listen, don't get me started. I've been down that road. I went all the way. You don't want to go there. Circumcised on the eighth day, he says. So I had that. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, like a really special tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Probably he had Hebrew parents and he spoke Hebrew growing up, or Aramaic growing up. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was in the elite circle of law keepers. Like, you want to keep the law perfect? You be a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, that doesn't mean Paul thought he never sinned. The law provided a way out. Offer sacrifices and you have your blame removed. So, Paul is saying, I was blameless under the law. And He was a model Jew in observance of Judaism. If anyone had reason to put confidence in the fact that they were a Jew, Paul did, but not anymore. And that's what we see in verses 7 to 9. Paul talks about the source of his joy now. The source of Christian joy. Again, Paul looks back at his former achievements, and he says, verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them garbage, that I might gain Christ. This is extreme language. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that comes through faith. So Paul here is saying everything that he used to get excited about and boast in under Judaism, everything he used to take confidence in. What does it mean to take confidence in something? If I sit in that chair, I have confidence that it's going to hold me. All right, We, have, we take confidence that something's going to hold us and be secure and not shift on us. Everything he used to take confidence in, he now considers loss for the sake of Jesus. He used to look at his perfect track record of eating kosher food. I've never touched anything bad. And he used to think, God loves me. Of course he does. I've kept that rule perfect. He used to remember the fact that he was circumcised on the eighth day and think, I've I've got that covered. I received the sign of being a part of God's family way back on the eighth day of my birth. There was never a time where I was not part of that people. He used to remember... All his studies and his good grades under the rabbi Gamaliel, or Gamaliel, however you say that, he studied under a, a famous rabbi and he, he was advancing in Judaism, becoming a leader among the Pharisees, a scholar of the Old Testament. And he looked back and he, he counts it all loss. Why? Because he met the Son of God. 
Jesus. Or maybe more correctly, on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, the risen Jesus met Paul. His name was Saul at that time. And remember what he was doing in Damascus, going there to murder Christians. Haul them off to prison. He's breathing out murderous threats. Though his flesh was filled with pride and keeping all God's rules, his heart was filled with anger against Jesus and against Jesus' people. And on that road, in a blazing light, Jesus changed him. He circumcised his heart by the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit enters into Paul's heart and begins to deal with with all the pride and all the selfishness and the anger and all the sin there. And, he, and Jesus fills this murderous man with love. And you watch the rest of the New Testament, you're like, man, Paul's life was transformed by Jesus. His letters are just filled with love. He loves people. So now, Paul, years later, he writes to the Philippians church and he says, guys, please don't go down that road. Please. You know Jesus, and there is no greater thing. You don't need to become a Jew outwardly for God to love you. You don't need circumcision to be righteous in God's sight. If you have faith in Jesus, you're righteous in God's sight. In fact, Paul goes on to say, everything I once thought gain is loss. And then he goes, he looks back and he says, My, I count all things as loss. Not just the things I used to take confidence in, but everything. Remember, Paul's in prison. He's got nothing. He says, I count it all as loss. In fact, if you compare anything to knowing Jesus, it's garbage, says Paul. That's really, really extreme language. But think about it this way. Imagine you get a really nice flashlight for your birthday. Really powerful, 10,000 lumens. Nothing wrong with the flashlight. But if you compare it to the sun blazing, I mean, it can't even compare. It's, it's, it, sunrises, when we see Jesus face to face, are, you know, they can't even compare. And, and that's what Paul's saying. When, when you compare anything to the Lord Jesus, he's always better. Next to any possession the world could possibly offer, possessing Jesus by faith is more of a treasure. Jesus and his kingdom, it's more of a treasure than, than all of creation put together. That's the mindset of the true Christian. And here, Paul is sharing it with us. He'll part with anything on earth even through agonizing tears, but we won't let go of Jesus. And we don't ever need to, because we can't lose him. If you lose everything in your life, you still have the Lord Jesus. And that's why you can count everything as lost compared to knowing Jesus. And the fact is, unless the Lord Jesus comes, we will all lose everything on earth. We're all going to die. And you can't, as everybody says, you can't take anything with you. Period. But if you have Jesus, you will live. And you will gain eternal life. So the passage, it might seem harsh. Everything garbage if you're going to compare it to knowing Jesus. Even good, beautiful things. I'm willing to part with them compared to knowing Jesus. That's extreme language for us who sit here with our arms filled with the blessings of life in America. But I saw in the news yesterday there was 10 Christian men who were beheaded by the Islamic State in Nigeria on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. We'll cut your heads off. They lost everything, did Right? Everything is lost. But in that moment, as they lost the world, they gained Jesus face to face. These promises are for people, for all of us, but they come especially sweet 
when we consider the sacrifices that our brothers and sisters around the world are making for the cause of Christ and what many of us here in America make as well, counting things lost, that we might gain more of Christ, knowing him better. Jesus is an anchor for our joy that doesn't pull loose no matter what happens to us. And at the heart of what Paul had found in Jesus is a righteous standing before God that doesn't depend on his own fleshly efforts to be good in God's sight. So you see that there in verse 9 of Philippians? That I may be found in him, connected to Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So in other words, when we trust Jesus with sincere and true faith, then God takes Jesus' perfect record of righteousness and obedient living, a record we fall far short of, and he gives it to us. We get a righteousness that doesn't come from our ability to keep the law and our own strength, but it comes from what Jesus has done for us to be obedient. And through his obedient life, as the only truly perfect human, Jesus represents us now before God. And when God looks at us with our sin, he sees Jesus. By his sacrifice, Jesus paid for all our sin, taking it away. And by his perfect life, Jesus represents us before God. If you're connected to him, that I may be found in him, said Paul. In him is the idea of being connected. Jesus represents me now before God. And I have now a righteousness that's not my own. By trying really, really hard, it comes through faith in Jesus. Because I could never be good enough. Jesus did it for me. But he doesn't just represent me, right? I mean, there's so many other passages we go to that say that Jesus puts his spirit in us and he starts working in us, changing us to be righteous. But that's not what Paul's talking about right here, I don't think. He's talking about Jesus becoming the righteousness of God for us. And Jesus represents us so that our confidence before God is not in how good we are or how much we've cleaned up our life. Our confidence is in Jesus because that doesn't change. We don't brag about our accomplishments in our Christian life as a grounds for more joy. Look how much I gave. I'm such a good Christian. Look how much I sacrificed. I'm such a good Christian. Look how clean I've kept my life. Look how obedient my kids are. Or how nice my family is. That's not our grounds for confidence before the Lord. Jesus is. And anything that he has worked in us and helped us be and accomplish and do, it's all because of his kindness to us and his help. So, just conclude with a few applications here. First, at the heart of our faith is the call to find our deepest joy in life in knowing the Lord Jesus and in growing in our relationship with him. Nothing can compare to knowing Jesus. As we grow in our knowledge of Jesus and our love for Jesus, actually the things that he made for us to enjoy in this world grow sweeter as we need them less and love him more. I'll say that again. As you grow in your love for Jesus, the gifts that he gives us, like the good things, actually grow sweeter as we need them less. We don't need these family and friends and stuff to make us happy. We don't need it. I have to have you be nice to me or I just can't live. I'm in despair. I have to have this level of money or I can't be happy. We need the gifts less as we love him more. And the gifts become sweeter because we can enjoy them for what they are. They're gifts, good gifts. But we hold them with open hands. So we don't look at our relationships with other people and say as Christians, I need you. 
for me to be happy. I need you to completely complete me. I need you to be for me my life, my joy, my everything. Because you know what? Ultimately, nobody can be that for another person. For starters, we're all going to die. So if somebody is your life, you are my life. My kids are my life. I live for my kids and then our kids die. Did your life die? What about if your best friend moves away? I can't live without you and you're moving? Did your life move away? No. Not if you know Jesus. Oh yes, God meets so many of our needs through other people. I don't know what my life would be like at this point without my wife. How would Brian remember anything without Ange? Right? But we hold these precious gifts. Sorry, Brian. <laughs> I love you so much, buddy. We hold these precious gifts with open hands. As we love Jesus more, we need the things of earth less. And so, when relationships bring me pain, we can go on loving those that we are called by God to love because we don't need them to fulfill us, to complete us, to make us happy. We have a source of joy, an inexhaustible source of joy and strength, and it's not them. It's Jesus. So we have the power to love and to give even when it's hard, even when we're getting nothing in return. The pressure can come off our relationships to provide what only Jesus can provide. And like I said, the less we need from people, the more we are in a position to love them like Jesus loved us. Jesus didn't need us, but he loves us. And he gave his life for us. And we can love others by his strength, even our enemies, even those who have hurt us. Think about possessions. I own some things that I really, really enjoy. Do you own some things that you enjoy? You have a car that you're like, man, I really like that this starts every time I turn the key. That makes me happy. But those things, I don't need those things to be happy. Jesus helps us hold everything we own, our possessions, with open hands. And we can be like Paul, who said, I lost all things, and compared to Jesus, they're nothing. It's garbage compared to knowing Jesus, even if it's a good thing. Now, the last thing I just want to mention is specifically what the, the false teachers were talking about. One of the greatest threats to our ongoing joy in the Lord is the temptation to rely on our own strength and the performances that we've done in our flesh for God to love us. Like he loves us more when we're good. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus hates me when I'm bad because it makes him really mad. All right? That's kind of, we're saying Jesus loves me, right? That's kind of the default of our hearts. Oh, he's cringing like, oh, I was bad. Now God must love me less. Ooh, I was good. God must love me more. No. He loves and accepts you through Jesus. Yes, we can grieve him or please him by our disobedience or our obedience. But Jesus is the ground for our confidence before God. If you trust God, your Father loves you, period, full stop. He's won for you the Father's love. And yet, there's so many times where we are tempted to rely on our own performance for the grounds of our confidence before God. And here's what happens. If you think you're doing really good in the Christian life, like I have cleaned up my life and I'm a good Christian, you become proud. It just happens. When I was 16, 17, 18, I thought I was a really good Christian. Very full of myself. And I I thought I knew more than even my peers or my adults I, and I was very arrogant okay and what that does is it starts making you look down on other people like 
if only you've in, you improved yourself like I have, you wouldn't have all those problems. So suck it up and try harder. Be a better Christian. And your life wouldn't be a mess. My life is going good. Because I've followed Jesus better than you. Okay, That's what this type of mentality makes us start to go down that road. And that's why many, many Christians go down that road. I've been there. I, we still battle with feeling better than other people because we've tried harder. We've worked harder. We've earned more. And it creates pride and it creates divisions in the church and it creates a whole mess. That's why people hate Christians sometimes. They're just religious, stuck up. They look down on everybody. It's because they are mistakenly taking their performance as their grounds for confidence before God. But when we know that apart from Him, we are nothing, we look at other people and we say, look, everything I am today is because of Jesus and His kindness to me. And you can experience His love too. On the other side, if we're doing bad, been there, failed, feeling like, man, I really blew it as a dad. I really blew it as a mom. I really blew it as a friend. I dropped the ball. I didn't love my friend well. I said something I regret. If we think that our grounds for confidence before God is on our performance, how our flesh is doing, then we are going to despair when we're doing bad. It's going to rob us of joy. Joy in the Lord. Because we're going to think, God doesn't like me anymore. God doesn't love me. I messed up. i got to do good now. Do some good things. I'll throw a little more in the offering plate. Whatever. To make God love me. No, it does not work that way. Jesus paid it all. He is the grounds for our acceptance, which pulls the rug out from pride and it lifts up those who are in despair. Jesus paid it all. Only the gospel can do that. And these false teachers were going to rob the Philippians of joy by creating pride in their ranks, which would create all kinds of division and looking down on others, or by creating despair. And this is the case for all churches everywhere. Show me a proud church or proud Christian. It's a Christian who doesn't get the gospel. He doesn't understand it. You might not even know the Lord Jesus. But we don't put confidence in the flesh. And may we be a church here at New Creation that doesn't put confidence in the flesh, but that brags about Jesus. Not in what we've done for Jesus, but about what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have saved us. We are so grateful. And I pray that you would help us to boast in you today, to put our confidence in you and not in anything we've done for you, and to be thankful for all your gifts and to be driven to you when our gifts are taken away. We look to you, Lord Jesus. We need you. Help us and we pray in your name. Amen.